All right, Joanna is still going to be a little bit, so that's perfectly fine. If um, you want to go ahead and share, that would be wonderful. Did you say we had to sit there? I, I, I got you. <laughs> yeah. All right. I was wanting to rap. <laughs> you got to put the hat on backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for having us. We won't talk too long, I promise. As you know, I'm the shortest-winded pastor at LifePoint. So. Does everybody here attend LifePoint? What's the largest amount of people you've had in this room? In this room? Oh, 20, 26. Uh, it's it's above 25. When we were at Landmark, I know we like over, we were over 30 a few times. But. Oh, wow. Well, I'm here to talk about the evangelism trip to Columbia, which will be this coming July. It's July 1st through the 8th. This will be my sixth trip to Colombia on an evangelism trip. I've also been to El Salvador and Ecuador on the same type of trip. But what we do, it's through OMS, but um, most people usually go are LifePoint attendees or members. And so we work with a different local church each day to go out into their community um, to share our personal testimonies and share the gospel. So um, I don't know what it is about Hispanic culture, especially there in South America, but they just love to hear North Americans' testimonies. So it's super easy to be able to talk to people. They want to hear your story. And then we always ask permission. We get to share the gospel with people. And I would say, I don't know, I'm guesstimating, but at least 90, 95% of the people allow you to share the gospel with them. And we use the Evangel Cube, which makes it real simple. Um, so like I said, our trip this year is July 1 through the 8th. I really wanted this trip to be mainly young people like uh, probably 25 and less for the most part. Right now, we can take 12 people. There's six people committed. Uh, myself and Terry Moore, another old guy, are going. <laughs> and then um, some of you who've been at LifePoint for a while probably know Jeremiah Rhodes. So Jeremiah and his dad, Bert, are going. Mm -hmm. And you probably know Luke Beasley. Mm -hmm. So Luke and then uh, Micah Moore, who's new to the college group. Mm -hmm. Micah's going. So we have six committed. Ladies can go too. It's just so far, everybody signed up as guys. Um, but we can take a maximum of 12 people. If you're a LifePoint attender or a member and you haven't been on a trip in the past two years, the mission planning group will pay half of your cost. The cost will probably be anywhere from $1,800 to $2,100 somewhere in the ballpark. So your cost is probably $900 to $1,000. Of course, you can raise that with family, friends outside of the church, that kind of thing. Um, but it's real, real simple. We have three or four meetings before we go. Everybody will know how to share the gospel using the cube. It's very simple. Um, it's really, really cool because you go out in teams of three or four people. So you have a translator who's usually typically a college student from South America. And you have a church member with you, a local church member. They will go up and introduce themselves to somebody on the street, at a home, even at a business. People there aren't in a hurry like Americans. You can actually go into a business and people, if they're waiting on somebody, will say, Give me two minutes and I'll listen to you. So it's really cool. Uh, but the local church member just simply introduces you and they'll tell the person or ask the person, would you like to hear their story? Usually they'll say yes. Then you get to share your testimony. You don't have to know one word of Spanish. Um, if you know Spanish, that's great. You don't have to know any. And then you get to go into the gospel with the cube. Then after you share the gospel, you ask the person if they're willing, ready to make a commitment. Then you just hand it back over to the translator. They'll take over from there. So we go out and do evangelism, but at the end of the day, we take all the names of the people we've talked to and we give it to the pastor of the church and we charge them 
to follow up and to disciple these people. So it's not just half of the Great Commission, you know, we, we believe in evangelism and discipleship. So they take care of that. Um, like I said, I've been there. This would be my sixth trip. I've never felt unsafe there at all. I felt safer there than downtown Indianapolis at times. So I've been. It's been a wonderful experience. So um, I'm just here to try and con you into possibly going. Like I said, we have six spots. You just need to know Jesus, be a fairly mature believer, and be willing to share the gospel. And I don't mean to say this in any kind of mean way, and I don't know all of you or anything, but I do have to kind of, we don't, just promote this church-wide to everybody because we can't take any drama type people with us because we're there to share the gospel and so we don't have time to work through that kind of stuff on this type of trip if it was a work trip or something it might be a little bit different but if you love Jesus and you love people you're fairly mature and you want to go share the gospel we would love to have any of you go so I'm going to shut up and you can ask me any questions but Anna has been to two of the trips so would you just share yeah. your experience so I've been twice, and I would say they're definitely some of the best days of my life thus week. Um, just a great time to grow. Like you said, I never felt unsafe. It's so cool to see the global church fellowship, and just you're immediately connected to that person. You may not be able to understand them all the time, but yeah, it's really cool to see how they worship. Um, my highlight from this last summer, like the best part was just getting so close with the translators. We still are in a group chat with them all the time. And like we were crying at the end because we just got so close to them and it was just so cool to make those connections and just help each other grow even though like there's cultural boundaries and things it was just so cool and just sharing the gospel with two little girls who really wanted a Bible because they didn't have one and just so open to the gospel it's amazing so I would highly encourage any of you to go keep an eye out for okay I'll say a couple more things I forgot <laughs> <laughs> if you're I don't really like these labels, but if you're a person who's been called or you call yourself like an introvert, you can still really be good at this. Um, Terry Moore, he doesn't mind me sharing this. Terry is an engineer. You know how most engineers are, guys are, right? Really analytical, probably not super personable. Usually, sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. But Terry, the, the week before we went the first time, he called me on the phone and said, don't know what you've gotten me into. As soon as we got there and he shared the gospel with one person, he was on fire. And if somebody walked by the street, he would be calling us, hey, there's somebody, go share the gospel with them. So you can do really well regardless of your personality. Um, it's after you overcome the fear and we can help you with that too. It's just a wonderful thing. And the reason I want some younger people to go, and some of you might be sharing the gospel regularly, I don't know. But most people who sit in the church pew every Sunday people who have been Christians for 50, 60, 70 years, many of them have never shared the gospel. They might have talked about God in general, maybe shared their testimony. Very few people have actually shared the gospel. So if you go on a trip like this, when you come home, it, you're just much more confident in being able to share the gospel or at school or with, at work or family, friends or whatever. So that's kind of the point of it. So any questions? Well, the sooner we can get the team together, it just makes it easier planning-wise. But I would say, to be honest with you, probably don't have to know for certain till like mid-January. I mean, it's not till July. We'll have like three team meetings beforehand. Um, but it'd be nice to have it filled up by then. Then they have more time to get cheaper airline tickets and those kind of things. But um, yeah, I would 
by the end of January, we'd really like to have our first meeting successful. You don't have to get any shots or anything. I mean, a year ago, you had to get COVID shots or test positive or test negative. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Before you go, but they've done away with that. I'm not saying it couldn't come back, but right now, you don't have to get any shots. You don't have to get typhoid. You don't have to get malaria. You don't have to do any of that unless you want to. We will not be in the jungle. We'll either be in the, the big cities, and they are big cities, or we'll be in a, a smaller rural town, but we won't be in the jungle. What would your living situation like when you go? It is not roughing it. These hotels we stay in are at, at least three-star hotels here. They're very nice. They're nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's, it's not roughing at all. So that being said, for those of you who have not been on a mission trip, this may be a really good one to start. Just mm-hmm. putting that out there. Thank you. Thank you. I'll pay you later. <laughs> yeah, it's not roughing it. The food is good. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have Domino's pizza there sometimes. Oh, yeah. We oh, also, yeah. Or we go to a restaurant or we eat at the hotel or sometimes when we go back at lunchtime. I forget. I'm, I'm old. I forget all kinds of things here, okay? So um, sometimes we'll go back to the church between morning and afternoon because they have a long span of time where you don't go out and talk to people because people are taking a nap in the culture. So sometimes the ladies will fix us a wonderful meal there. But the other cool thing is you not only get to go to share the gospel, you also get to train the people there Mm -hmm. to share the gospel using the cube so after we leave they continue to do it. That's a key point of this that I forgot. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the cube? Uh, People have seen a Ruby's cube before, right? Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much like a Ruby's cube, only it shares the gospel. The first picture is a picture of the sun, which represents God. You have a picture of man who's all in darkness, sin separates us from God. The next picture is Jesus on the cross, then in the tomb, then the resurrection. Then you have the bridge, you know, John 14, 6. And then you have the two hands coming together with heaven up here and hell down there. So it's just a simple. Also keep in mind that uh, you have two people here, three people here. Jacob is probably the best one of the bunch but also I'm good at Spanish and Julia has a working knowledge of it as well so there's that too if you are interested in learning the Spanish language before you go well any other questions I mean I'll stay and answer questions but I won't take too much of your time done once <laughs> done twice well, if you see me at church um, or send me an email or um, you can give my phone number out, I don't care. Just just let me know. And if you can't go this year due to schedule conflict or something, I do this every year. So there will be future trips. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. But there will be trips in the future if you can't go. Like you got to be in a wedding or getting married or something like that. <laughs> if you're not a person who attends LifePoint, you're not disqualified from going, but we'll first have the time period to try to get LifePoint people to go. Um, then you could go, but the mission planning groups probably not going to pay half of the cost because you don't go to LifePoint. That would be the only downside if you're not a LifePoint attendee. On the financial side, um, if any of you are interested but feel prohibited, we also still have some funds left over um, from things in the past that we might be able to help subsidize that a little bit for you guys. You guys are too cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm not one. I can take
The book of 2 Peter is a book which has certainly received less attention within the modern church, um, and I think you'll see why tonight. This is, I, I'm going to be honest, when, you're, when I'm writing this lesson, I, I sent Lexi a text immediately and said, this isn't, this isn't my best work, Lexi, um, and it's probably a combination of it not being the most you know, applicable text, quote unquote, and also just not my best work, so give me a little bit of grace as we go through. Um, but the portrait of sec, of Second Peter here is not jovial by any stretch, and in some senses it could be perceived as a little bit uh, depressing, honestly. Sermons about the love of God, for instance, are going to be far more popular than sermons characterizing the behavior of false teachers. And that's just, I mean, we just don't like a characterization of false teachers. But this is the benefits of expositional preaching as you take the text as it comes and whatever scripture has for us is what we work through. Um, allow me to offer you three possible reasons why people uh, do not prefer these sort of topics. First, um, if there are false teachers present within your church, we tend to be a very confrontation-averse society. Uh, society as a whole, families, and relationships are all incredibly fragile entities with carefully nego negotiated truces upon which we interact. Confronting someone over sin can upset the balance and the way things that they have been, and it can be therefore uncomfortable and awkward to speak against false teaching, especially if they're sort of lording over the congregation in a domineering way. Second, and conversely, if there are not false teachers present within your church that you can see, then learning about false teachers seems kind of pointless because you're like, well, I'm either doing really well, so I don't want to talk about it, or things are going really badly so I don't want to talk about it. Um, you might think your church is doing just fine and it isn't really under any existential threat for that infiltration from false teachers that Peter describes. Third, um, you may find these lessons rather impractical. We tend to care more about a sermon that is uh, going to focus on how it helps us cope with our week and how it helps us regulate our emotions as we go through the week. If we come to the Word of God so self-centered, then we will find no place for a teaching on how to deal with false teachers. Perhaps you may question your ability to do anything about it, even if there were false teachers. You might say, if false teachers really did come to my church, 
I'm not smart enough and I'm not influential enough within my church politics to do anything anyways, so why does it matter? In response to all three, I wish to say this. Every single passage of scripture is profitable for us in season and out of season. It is important to remain balanced in our teaching between positive and negative aspects, but there are indeed times that we have to call sin, sin. I think here at Koinonia, things are going pretty well currently. I don't think we're in a place where it's like we're under this existential threat of infiltration from false teachers, but it's really precisely at these best moments that we need to be most on guard. It's when you are doing so well and you let your guard down and say, you know what, I'm just going to be a little bit more lax just for, just for a few months. I'm going to let that teaching slide and this will be okay. This is not something that we can tolerate. When you are at your best is when you need to be most on guard and Julia is already cold. <laughs> I love that. Um, we need every single member of our local congregations to be well equipped to recognize false teaching for what it is. As we will see, false teachers prey on unstable people, right? If you're going to develop a movement, you're probably not going to go to the most dogmatic people in the truth that you know and try to start it there. You're gonna start with people who are on the fence, not sure what they believe, and work from there. And this is exactly what we see the false teachers doing. It is these people that our uh, false teachers are able to develop a powerful following amongst. So tonight then, we will predominantly characterize the behavior of false teachers, though that, by contrast, I hope we show some of the positive characteristics of what a good shepherd would do, because it is almost a mirror image in Scripture. So let's begin by looking at the blasphemies of the false teachers, verses 10b through 13a, which is just basically the second half to the first half of those respective verses. What is the first thing that characterizes false teachers? The very first thing that we see from Peter is that they are bold and willful. And this basically means that they are daring and do whatever pleases them. That's the word hedon for hedonist there. It does, they do whatever pleases them. They proclaim an authority to which they are not entitled. Most times when somebody asks you to do something that is a dare or a what are the odds, this is basically what that word means. It's not usually something that is the most wise decision. I have never once heard a what are the odds question lend to something that was truly a prudent and good decision, I don't think. Um, you know what, actually I'll take that back. You two have done some really interesting ones that have led to some. But on the whole, on the whole, on the whole, dares, dares um, don't normally end up in a good position. And so Peter's word choice here is that they are daring. They are doing things that are unreasonable, risky type behaviors. Um, and what is this daring action that the false teachers are going to do with this carefree attitude that they should be trembling at? Well, they're going to slander the glorious ones. Now, if you look at this text, you're going to see a whole lot of thems and thes and theirs 
and there's a whole lot of disagreement on what refers to what. And so we're going to work through some of those interpretive difficulties. For example, do the false teachers blaspheme good angels or bad angels? I think most people walk into this text with that assumption that it's bad angels. That's not a given. Do the good angels refrain from pronouncing judgment on bad angels, or do they refrain from pronouncing judgment on the false teachers? That's another interpretive issue that the commentators, I think, really drew out well. As we go through this, again, look over in the parallel text within Jude. I think that is a solid place that we can develop our interpretation. Flip over to Jude and see how Jude describes it. And I think it's pretty clear what's happening over there in that passage. And so my interpretation is going to follow a lot of what's happening over in the book of Jude. The false angels then do not, or I'm sorry, the good angels rather, do, do not pronounce judgment on evil angels, even though they are so much stronger than both the false teachers and the evil angels. Jude 8 through 10. <laughs> I think what Peter is saying here then is that the false teachers are willing to slander evil angels, but even good angels aren't willing to do that. He's trying to draw out just how stupid they are for doing this. Similarly, last week we talked about First Enoch a little bit and the uh, inter, intertestamental literature there. We, in First Enoch, we see that the good angels cry because of human suffering, but they don't go to the bad angels during that time, what do they do? They go before the Lord, who then pronounces judgment. And so Peter could be continuing on with this first Enoch tradition. We don't know precisely what the false teachers did that was so flippant. I think that's what would be really helpful for us to apply it to our lives, is to know this is exactly how the false teachers blasphemed these evil angels. You know, when I'm going through this text for preparation, did I think, you know what, in Koinonia, we really have an issue with false teachers, blaspheming evil angels. No, I, I mean, honestly, that wasn't a thought that crossed my mind. So I, I went through and we, we did some work on trying to find what are some relevant and good applications from this text. So let's give you, let's give a hypothetical. I think it's, there's some really good inferences that the false teachers were doing this, but I can't be like dogmatic and say 100%. It's not in the text, but we have some good reasons for thinking this is one of the things that the false teachers did. Down in verse 19, do you see how they're proclaiming freedom? Their mantra is like, freedom, yes, freedom from the apostolic way, the morals of the apostles probably. What an entrapping, intoxicating word freedom can be for humans. The false teachers are living morally debauched lives and yet proclaiming this is what true freedom is. To put a little bit of a modern spin on it with the sexual connotations that I think you'll see in this passage, this is a very reproductive freedom type comment from the false teachers. Here's the possibly sl slanderous part though. They may have scoffed and laughed at the idea that they were in any sense coming, uh, coming under satanic influence. Okay, So we're free, we can do whatever we want. And Peter's saying, your conduct is not free. You are coming back under the power of Satan's way of life. And so many commentators take it to say that they are slandering the evil ones by saying, you know what, I can sin in any way I like, 
But you know, Satan's, Satan's really not got anything on me. I think that's one of the ways in which it's very likely that the false teachers were slandering here. They probably claim to be the enlightened ones among the congregation, if you would. Like, ah, I really know what it means to truly be spiritual, and this is what you can do if you are truly spiritual. We cannot be sure that this is happening, but I think we can safely make this application. Treat the demonic realm with enough respect to realize that flirting with it is a poor idea. Okay, I know that's super generic, but I think it's the most fair application I can make out of this text. Flirting with demonic stuff is a bad idea. It really doesn't take anyone with a seminary degree to tell you that, but it is obvious from this text. As a Christian, don't get such an inflated view of yourself to forget that it is Christ who is superior to the angelic forces, not you. If you read through Hebrews, that's the point. The ancient world had this obsession with angels. Like, they're super powerful. They can do all of this stuff in our world. And Hebrews is out to say, Christ is more powerful than evil and good angels. And that's true. But remember, it is Christ in you, not you, who is more powerful than evil angels. Don't forget that it is Christ who won the victory. I have no problem with proclaiming defeat over Satan and the demonic realm. That's awesome. But when we boast, let us boast in the cross of Christ. I don't mean to precisely regulate your entertainment. Okay, that is not my goal here. As a matter of fact, I've, I've tried to do that before, and I've actually thought about that and really turned back on some, of, uh, on some of what I did. So my point is not to be dogmatic and regulatory, but here is, I'm just going to offer some words of caution with varying degrees of intensity. That's how I'll put this. Be very cautious with clearly demonic movies, okay? Especially ones that portray it in a positive light. That's, that's one of the most negative things about it, is when we take what is evil and proclaim it to be good. Okay? I thought of you, the Ouija boards, right? I, we have some people not too far from this group that we know who have had some very interesting spiritual encounters because of really honestly attempting to tap into that spiritual realm. It's real. Don't forget that the demonic realm is real. And, you know, tarot cards, Ouija, you know, all these sort of things. I would encourage you to be very cautious and to avoid these things as a Christian. Don't play with the occult in a general sense. It is very powerful. I'm not overly concerned about this in this group, but I, I think in our culture it can be so empirical, so scientific, that we just look at these things and say, yeah, they're nothing. Right? It's literally just cardboard or it's just a film. And inherently you're right, okay? But the things that can go behind that are spiritual. Don't become so intoxicated by a scientific worldview that you forget that the spiritual world is indeed real. What happens to the false teachers then who don't heed this sort of warning? They have become like animals who are without reason and operate by instinct alone. In other words, they are vessels of wrath who are prepared for destruction. Perhaps even more ironically, Peter says that they have no idea what they are talking about. They are ignorant. And perhaps there is some element of humility in knowing what you know, but more than knowing what you know, it's knowing what you don't know that is helpful in life. Knowing when you should speak and knowing, hey, you know, I don't really know enough about that to, to go spouting off about that is, is a wise choice. And I think what Peter's saying, him, Paul, we've actually had spiritual experiences in life. You know, and Paul's right, and he's like, I've literally taken a trip to heaven. I know what the spiritual realities are like. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. And that's what I hear in Peter's tone here is, 
I've seen a lot of things. I've literally been with Jesus. What, you have no idea what you're even talking about right now. It is so wrong. It is so dangerous. And I think we really see some experiential warnings here from the Apostle Peter. There is a danger to both under-spiritualizing and over-spiritualizing. On one hand, we can forget that demons invigorate idols which are nothing but materials. 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22. This is one of those times when we can under-spiritualize. You know, it's just this, it's just this, and we forget that the demonic realm is indeed real. 1 Corinthians 10, 14-22. So Paul's point there is, yeah, there are idols, but guess what? You praying to an idol, it might actually happen. Why? Because the idol's anything? No, but because a demon can hear that prayer and invigorate that idol. He's saying we don't want to be idolaters and praying to demons behind those idols. On the other hand, you know, we probably don't bow down to physical idols, right? But we would be remiss to say that demons are not active within our society in other ways, deceiving us and leading us astray. And yet... There are people who it's Satan's fault for everything, right? Literally everything is attributed to Satan. I wouldn't want to mention anyone in particular, um, but some people like to attribute some things to, to Satan. And um, no, every, it's just a running joke between us. He, he's like, it's Satan, bro. It's Satan whenever any... It is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I would encourage you guys... I some peanuts at Texas Roadhouse. It was Satan. It was Satan. <laughs> I want to encourage you guys to remember that Satan is not God. And what I mean by that is God is omnipresent. Satan is not. Okay? Satan is more than, I think it's fair to say this from scripture, involved in the bigger systems of thought in the world. He is deceiving the world through false religions and large macro type things in a predominant way. That's not to say there's not demonic influence in things. But what I want you to hear is James 1.14. It doesn't take a demon to get you to sin. Can you believe that? Humans are so wonderful that we can sin on our own. It's amazing. James 1.14. Because each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It is your own desire inside of you. Even if you removed every demon from this planet right now, guess what would still be here? Sin. Because it's inside of you. It's inside of us as humans. Don't forget that we can do this on our own. Within some more charismatic circles especially, and I, I was just sitting here thinking of um, uh, COVID-19. Uh, Kenneth, Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, yes, right. COVID-19, you know, that whole thing that went around. There, within ca charismatic circles, there is, uh, how many of you have heard of 
uh, demon bindings that more charismatic churches can perform. Anyone? Okay. All right. So I just, I just want to highlight that that is something that we are not called to do as Christians. You are not called to bind Satan. And honestly, for that matter, if the church down the road got him this week, I want to know who keeps setting him loose every week for the other <laughs> church down the road to bind him again next Sunday. Um, I'll, I'll take it a little more personal. I don't think we have any, any of that here. But uh, within some circles, there's even, um, again, I'm not saying it's wrong. But there's merchandise that's saying, like, not today, Satan, you know, those hats. And I, those hats have always just, um, I, I can appreciate the sentiment. But they give me a moment of pause because I have no problem in celebrating the downfall of Satan. But again, do we want to say, ha Satan, I got you today. I'm not sure we want to really address the evil angels in such a flippant manner. They're very powerful beings. If anything, here's what we should do when we overcome sin. We should say, thank you, Lord Christ, for giving me the power to overcome the sin that is in the world. We glory in Christ. And when Jesus is tempted, yes, he does speak directly to the devil, but look what he's doing. He's appealing to scripture. And Gabriel, he's appealing to God to judge the angels. It is not just this flippant, like, oh, I don't care, kind of carefree attitude. It is real. They are deceptive. They come as an angel of light. It's, it's, um, it's a very serious matter. And so, again, I'm not trying to be down on any one thing. I just want you to be cognizant of the fact that sometimes we treat it very, very lightly within our society. Okay. Colossians 2.15, Revelation 12, 8 through 12. I wanted to include these verses here. Why? These are the verses about the downfall of Satan. But what do they highlight? What do they highlight? Are they highlighting how humans are strong enough to say no to Satan? No. All of them are in the framework of Jesus' blood being applied to Christians as the power, spiritually, that is enough to overcome these temptations. Colossians 2. If we, are glory, if we are to glory in anything, we glory in the cross. Revelation 12. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers have been thrown down, accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Re- therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. I'd be happy to take this up at a later time, but I think that is a passage which is describing something that happened at the cross, okay, in my interpretation of Revelation. Back to our text in 2 Peter. The false teachers will be destroyed. Now, people debate if they're going to be destroyed with the animals in that context or the evil angels, among other options. But the sense is straightforward enough. God will destroy the false teachers. Now, there, for you punny people, there are numerous Greek word plays and puns all throughout this text. And here, we find a little play on words. The false teachers will suffer wrong or injury or harm as a result of their wrongdoing. So how could we summarize the blasphemies of the false teachers? In a sentence, they disrespectfully slander evil angels, yet they will burn with them. That's Peter's wordplay here. Is you think you're so much better, 
you're actually in the same condemnation as the angels, which is honestly and truly tragic when you stop and think about it. Next, let's consider the, uh, the blemishes that the teachers were bringing upon the Christian assembly, verse 13b through 14. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, a curse of children. They engaged in overindulgence during the day, which was seen to be especially negative within that culture. In Roman culture, someone might be drunk at night, sure, but if you're drunk during the day, then that means you're forsaking your responsibilities within society, and that's going to be an important value within Roman culture. The false teachers then had certainly forgotten their responsibilities to care for and not fleece the flock of God. This is just reminiscent here of Peter's defense at Pentecost saying, these men are not drunk as you suppose because it is only 9 a.m. What a weird defense from Peter until you understand in this society, well, no, people shouldn't be drunk during the day. That's weird. And what Peter's saying here, I think it's ironic that it's Peter too. Peter is saying these people are indulging during the day. They are, even by society standards, this is bad, everyone. We have some really bad people within our church here. They have forgotten their societal responsibilities. Now, how many of you here have um, had the opportunity to attend a Koinonia love feast? Let's see here. Okay. I love that we're getting more and more people who haven't. This is wonderful, and I, I can't wait to bring this back at some point within the future. Um, following the early church's pattern of communion, after an extensive time of teaching and reconciliation and such, we have taken communion with a meal, and this was the pattern of the early church. Uh, as I hope your experience within this group can testify to, this is meant to be a time of corporate unity, corporate peace, corporate confession. It's, it's really designed to be a time where we are honest with one another and real with God. Honest with one another and real with God. Peter makes a play on words here that I think is hilarious and perfect. He describes these agape feasts as apate feasts. Okay? You see the Greek word play there. Now, that word for apate means deception. So what Peter's saying is your love feasts are not even love feasts anymore. They're deception feasts, which is a pretty big roast if, if we're being honest. So he's basically using this pun to say what you call a love feast isn't even, it has no love left in it anymore. It's all a deception. And what is that deception? Well, we're going to see as we move through the rest of the text. Again, I, I hope that you would look back on these times as transparent and beautiful within Koinonia. Now imagine that you find out something about the teachers, and by teachers I mean me, um, and, and you look back on all those times and you say, those were all false pretenses the entire time. I've been, just been lying the entire time. And that's probably going to give a little bit of a tainting view to everything I said during the love feast, and I think that's fair. So what two ways are the false teachers putting on pretenses? Sex and money. I mean, okay, sex and money, that's what the false teachers are obsessed with. So they are sort of hidden, they're sneaky. If you look over in the parallel passage in Jude, they're, they're, it's described as reefs, right? Like reefs. They are, they're subtle about it, and yet what is below that thin veneer of corporate unity and corporate peace and corporate love within these communal meals and, and the Lord's table. What's below that? Sex and money. 
Even while they are sharing in holy communion with the people of God, their eyes were looking for someone to entice into a sexual relationship with them. Particularly, they were looking for unstable individuals, women presumably. One commentator described these false teachers, and correctly in my opinion, as compulsive sexual predators. I thought that was a very fair description. Now let's look at the church today. Cult after cult, and even true churches, but with false teachers infiltrating, what seems to always happen? Some sort of sexual scandal, and even possibly sexual abuse of some sort. I mean, it's just cult after cult, and church after church that you hear. Why? Because you have amazing people who are representing Christ so well? No, because you have false teachers who are obsessed with the exact same things that the false teachers were obsessed with in Peter's day. Now, beyond sex, the false teachers want your money. Does that sound like a cult? Yes, of course. Does it sound like the prosperity gospel preachers of today? Absolutely, it certainly does. Not only are they there to fleece the flock, but Peter uses a word to say that they are athletically trained in how to be greedy. They are skilled at it. They are good at getting money from people. I almost entitled this lesson, El Roy, the God who sees, for this simple reason. False teachers are really good at faking appearances. The false teachers are sneaky. They're subtle. They're good at manipulating for sexual favors. They're good at manipulating to garner money from the congregation. And even within the story of Balaam, there appears to be this part that God sees Balaam's secret motivations and judges him for it. For good or for bad, God sees the hearts of men. You might have everyone in this room fooled. Uh, we might just think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, but trust me, you don't have God fooled. He knows what's in your mind. He knows what you do with your, knowledge, your wallet. He knows what you are doing in your sexual life as well. His eyes in psalmic language are within the whole earth. He sees everything. God knows you. And Jesus knew that Judas was evil even before his betrayal occurred. He called him evil even before he went so far as to betray the Christ. Don't be fooled. If you are evil, number one, God knows it right now. But number two, Matthew 7, 15 through 20, that what's in the heart of a man is going to come out in the fruit. And particularly with false teachers who get on a power trip, that power trip has to be satisfied somewhere, right? And so often it's going to find two outlets, sexual activity, money. Those are two of the greatest downfalls of people throughout human history. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. That was probably... Oh, okay. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. If you'll allow me to teach both positively and negatively here, listen to Paul as he describes what a true elder is to be. Uh, Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and love, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward, 
You must be above reproach. You must not be arrogant on, or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for, greedy for gain, but hospitable, a good, uh, lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It is men such as these who are qualified and tested who are designed to be protectors of the flock from predators such as what Peter is describing. Now, what is one of the main ways that churches end up in these sexual and financial scandals? How do we end up with abusive elders? We relax on our elder standards. We relax on what scripture calls us to for having church leadership. Paul says in 1 Timothy that if you desire to be an elder, you desire a good thing. And then he says, therefore, go be magnificent and captivating as an orator. Or, therefore, go and develop this magnetic, brandable personality. No, of course not. What does he say? He launches into this discussion of what kind of a godly man you should be if you want to lead within the church. And I think we've traded brandability, magnetism, energy, charisma for elder qualities. That's why we have the situation within the church that we do. Some of you aspire to lead in the church. I appreciate that. I truly do. But particularly to the men in this room right now, if you are unable to develop control over your sexual and monetary desires, you stand to do the church a great deal of harm. I can almost guarantee you that no one sets out to make grave sexual errors or to embezzle church funds. No one's like, I can't wait to, you know, I mean, I hope, <laughs> I hope no one sets out with the desire to have, you know, the next scandal within the evangelical church. But if you are unable to stand against lust and pornography and unable to make good on your debts, then how can you expect to lead within the church of God? Lest we take too restrictive of an understanding on greed, Paul sees that greed can have this broad scope of a desire for any sort of impurity. Ephesians 4.19. It's not just greed for money, greed for power, greed for pleasure, greed for entertainment. Paul has all of these sorts of impurities in mind when he says you can be greedy for any number of things. Ephesians 4.19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I, I spent some time on that word sensuality this week, and I, I've... I've always been puzzled by it because I, I, I wasn't sure how it was different from sexuality. I was like, what's the difference? And it's a very simple one. It's just they are consumed with anything that is sense experience, right? You know, anything that feels good to the five senses. It's like, okay, you know, I like food. I like entertainment. I like, you can fill in. There's so much you can fill in that blank. It's not just sexual things alone. It's preoccupation with the things of this world that distract from our true purpose in serving the congregation. While we are happy to develop leaders who are still struggling in sin here, there is a definite reason why at Koinonia we reserve the teaching role for those who have consistently demonstrated a pattern of moral uprightness. If you don't think that there's a temptation to become lax on these standards, you are wrong. It is convenient. It is easy to let these things slide. That's the easy path by far. But generalizing even beyond the men here for a moment, until you have seen true victory in your life regarding sexuality and finances and other things, you don't truly know how severely it can cloud your spiritual judgment. It can be so life-dominating, and yet you don't even see it. That's the danger of it. It, it can become a lens 
through which the entire world is filtered. Everything can take on a sexual tint. You know, to the pure, all things are pure, and to the unpure, not everything's pure. How, how many times have you just said something, you're like, you know, an innocent group of people, this joke, you know, and then they take it, they take it the wrong way because, you know, you can make anything inappropriate, right? And that's to the impure. Everything's going to be impure. Everything can take on this sexual tint if you let it. And if you are currently in a life dominating struggle with sexual sin, then everything tends to take on that sexual tint, no matter how much you want to think that it doesn't impact you. And it's not just that everything can become about money too. Like I want the newest thing. I'm going to work all these long hours and abandon other responsibilities in life just so I can get more money. Money can easily become this God. And this is what we see out of the false teachers, sex, money, power, abuse of people dominates their character. Brothers and sisters, as Peter goes on to say, it ought not to be so among us. Assuming that you know the Lord Jesus here today, you have every reason to hope that you can have victory over these sort of sins. Set aside the idol, feast upon who Christ is, and move forward in forgiveness. Someday, by God's grace, you will be able to lead among the church if you continue to follow Christ. You will be able to say, I was once that way, and now I am this way. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. We put off that which is evil. And we don't just put on more spiritual disciplines. We don't just put on praying away the sexual sin. We don't just put on, you know, and you can fill in the blank. We, what do we do? We put on Christ and we meditate upon how Christ lived and attempt to model our pattern after that. Let's look at Peter's example of this false teaching in Balaam, verses 15 and 16. The false teachers were on the right path and they left it. They were on the way of truth and instead opted for the same way that Balaam followed. Interestingly, here's another wordplay. Instead of calling Balaam the son of Beor, which is what maybe in some of your translations, Peter calls him the son of Basor, which is a wordplay on a Hebrew word for flesh. So he doesn't call him by his actual father's name. He says, you son of flesh. You're, this is just dominating your personality. You're just inherently fleshly. Balaam is a son of flesh upon whom which condemnation will come. In general, both Jewish and Christian tradition then picked him up, Balaam, as this negative example, even though the story is really intriguing and kind of gray when you go back to Numbers and read it. Uh, Revelation 2, 14. So let's take a look at this story of Balaam. And I'm, for sake of time, I'm going to sort of gloss it for us. But what is his story? What is the way of Balaam that these false teachers are following? 
Well, this is probably going to help us get a little bit of an idea. Back in Numbers 22 through 24, we find that the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. You know, they're in their journeys. They're wandering throughout the wilderness. And the king of Moab sees these people wandering, and he wants to basically destroy them. And so he goes to this prophet for hire by the name of Balaam, and he offers Balaam money in order to pronounce curses upon Israel. Now, what does Balaam do? He, this is very interesting, he refuses, which I'm like, I read this, I'm like, well, okay, well, I don't see how this is so bad so far. What did Balaam do wrong? Um, so, so the guys go back, and the king says more, sends more and higher level officials, officials to convince him with more wealth and more honor. And Balaam says he can't do anything but what the Lord tells him to do. And then says, hey, you should spend the night. So I should ask God again, just in case, you know, just in case, you know, God's changed his mind on this issue. You should spend the night. Okay. And so he has this dream and God says that he can, he can go with them, but only if he does what God tells him to do. And then uh, this time God tells him he can go and he goes, but God seems to be angered by Balaam's motives. God becomes very angry with him, which I know it's, there's a slight read into the text here, but Balaam is sort of trying to coax God into this, and we'll see his motives come out later in the story. God knows his heart before he's done anything wrong, and he's angry with Balaam before in the narrative he's done anything, anything wrong at all, which confuses snot out of me as I'm reading this text. I'm like, I'm trying to figure out where Balaam went wrong, and I'm like, I don't see it yet. And that this is what I find interesting. God knows the motive of Balaam before he's done anything wrong. So he sends the angel of the Lord, and you can take that however you want to. But, okay, the donkey sees this angel of the Lord that Balaam doesn't see. And this donkey keeps going off the path in wrong places in a field and in this path and in that path. And he just keeps going off the wrong path because he sees this angel of the Lord with a sword about to kill Balaam. And I'm going to skip over this reading for the time being. Um, no, I'm not actually, because it's hilarious. Um, numbers 22, 24 through 35. I include it for a reason. Um, you guys yeah, we're going to read it. It's amazing. This donkey is hilarious. Okay, this donkey's hilarious. Numbers 22, uh, 24 through 35. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey <coughs> saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Then the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. With his, with, with his drawn sword in hand. And he bowed down, fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkeys three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, 
because your way is perverse before as perverse before me the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times if she had not turned aside from me surely just now i would have killed you and let her live then balaam said to the angel of the lord i have sinned uh, i have sinned for i did not know that you stood in the road against me now therefore if it is evil in your sight i will turn back and if the and the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the prince of Balak. People say that it was a miracle that the donkey talked, but honestly the true miracle is that Balaam talked back to the donkey. Right? Like what kind of mental place do you have to be in? I, I Yeah. Am I not your donkey? Like I've treated you so well. Um as the story goes, the Lord did not permit Balaam to curse Israel, but instead, Balaam ended up blessing Israel four times. But then Israel, next chapter, 25, stumbles into idolatry and intermarriage, and the Lord strikes him with the plague, with the plague, a plague. As the narrative progresses, when Israel goes to war with Midian, I'm skipping over this reading, Balaam is found among them, and he's killed. And guess who is responsible for that intermarriage that led to idolatry? Numbers 31, 15 through 16. Balaam used a backdoor approach to take the people of Israel down when he couldn't curse them like he wanted to to get money, which I think is really interesting. God says, no, you say only what I say. And Balaam, under pretty much compulsion, prophesies whatever God puts in his mouth to say, which is fitting with what Peter said about true prophecy, by the way. And yet, Balaam is greedy and he's sexual, so he goes to the king of Midian, says, hey, I know something about these people. Here's what you should do. And he promotes intermarriage, idolatry, sexual sin, and takes the people of Israel down in a backdoor way. Notice the same themes from these two passages in the life of Balaam. Balaam is sneaky. He is motivated by the prospects of money and honor. In some sense, Balaam is disrespectful to heavenly being by going around his back. Furthermore, Balaam caused the people to engage in sexual immorality. And in the end, he suffered divine punishment of death as well. These are all characteristics that describe the way of Balaam. Perhaps in a final sense of irony, Peter highlights that comparing the false teachers to angels, or to angels, to animals, may be too high a compliment since Balaam's donkey seems to have had more spiritual insight than him. Not only did the donkey see the angel of the Lord, but according to the Targum, Targum, that's a word to jot down, the donkey spoke a rebuke against Balaam. This Peter says, curbed Balaam's irrationality. Uh, how, many, how many of you have heard of the Targum before? It was in Beale's lecture, so you should have heard of it. No. Um, the Targum, if you want a simple, non-technical definition, it's the Jewish message version of the Old Testament. It's an interpretive, paraphrasic, uh, paraphrasic actually is the way you pronounce that, version of the Old Testament. And within that translation or that interpretation of the Old Testament, there's a longer version about Balaam's donkey giving this whole like spiritually insightful speech that condemns uh, that condemns Balaam. And so perhaps Peter's picking up on this idea of the donkey having this longer oration against Peter. Sin, as is in the case of the false teachers, will continually perpetuate irrationality. This word means to be beside oneself, insane, acting out of their mind. 
and I, I think I'm safe to say this, I think it's safe to say this, sin is always irrational. From the human perspective, certain sins may seem like they have a logical end, but if we could only th see things from God's perspective, then we would know that sin is futile and honestly ridiculous. Society spins more and more out of control, and it becomes more clearly and more clearly illogical. Why? Sin has a corrupting influence on the mind. When one becomes a Christian, we see more and more clearly the way of God is surely right and it is surely good. As we move to a conclusion for this evening, I want to end briefly on a note of encouragement if I can still sneak in a little bit of positivity here. I understand that these texts can be heavy, um, and yet one of the principles to draw uh, from expositional preaching is that you always want to try to find some glorious quality of God within the text that causes the hearts of his people to delight in him more fully. So, as I went through this, I said, what can we learn about God and ourselves, but about God that will cause us to glorify him more fully? And honestly, the first one that is obvious from this text is the condemnation of the false teachers. I am thankful for God's justice. <laughs> The question which antagonizes or antagonists of Christianity throw out is so often is if there is a good God, then how could dot 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 and you fill in that blank. How could he send how could a good God send people to hell, for example? And while we should be very cautious about delighting in judgment, can you imagine a universe in which all the wrongs were never made right? I am thankful that God will judge righteously. I know people in this very room who have been grievously hurt by people who appeared to be Christians. Thank God that he sees his children, that they, when they are oppressed, when they are afflicted, and he chooses to fight for them. Turn over to uh, 1 Peter 5. Peter gives a little bit of a mere description of what it means to be a good teacher over here. Opposite of the false teachers, we see Peter describe what a good elder looks like. 1 Peter chapter 5. The under-shepherd is there to protect you and guide you by his oversight. Good shepherds aren't depressed about having to be an elder and, ah, the drudgery of it all. i got to care for this stupid flock of God. And sometimes it is a stupid flock of God now that I say it. You know, sometimes we are pretty stupid. But that's not the, that's not the emotional state of the elder. He's doing it willingly. He's even doing it joyfully. Now, it's not to say that every single moment of every single day is going to be the highest joy of your life if you serve in church leadership. But it is to say that you're not there under compulsion. You're there because you love people and you love helping people love God more. Um, they get to do it. It's a, it's a get to, not a have to. It isn't about the money. It is that they love dedicating their life to protecting God's sheep. They aren't lording over the congregation with a heavy hand of authority. They aren't on this dogmatic power trip. They're leading by example, with the foremost among them being the least and the servants. We are to be firm leaders, yes, but there is also this, how is it even predominant element, where we are to be tender to a bruised reed. We are to be sensitive to preserve unity and examples in conduct. When I think of shepherding, there is this undefinable bit that most clearly showcases what true shepherding is. There's something that I call just sort of pastoral heart that can only be experienced, that can't be taught in the classroom. There's this eagerness that Peter speaks of, and I, I, it's evident in my experience even of like, when I wake up, I'm thinking about you guys. When, when I'm going through my day, I'm 
working on ideas in my head. It's like that subterranean level of thought. I'm just thinking about it all day. What can we do to make this better? How can we better serve you guys? And I end my day by dreaming of how we can shepherd the sheep of Christ's flock right here to greener spiritual pastures. Many times that's going to come in the form of a late call, an inconvenient call. It's going to come in the form of you making the call to other people to stay involved in their life and to know what's going on and to just be in their be in their hearts and minds. I think we, we talked about this a little week. You know, people just, people share with the people that they're in conversation with, right? If you're talking to people on a regular basis, they're more likely to share just what, people forget the bad stuff that happened two weeks ago, right? We're very, we're very forgetful people. But if we're checking in with folks and putting a call in and putting a message, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, you know, I'm thinking about you and I care about you and I see these good qualities in you. You're developing in these ways. And just having that be the general tenor of your life, that's going to be a good, good under shepherd because you are involved in the lives of your people. It's, it's, you know, there's the positive side of it. And yet you shed many tears too, because you're carrying the burdens of a lot of people and you feel older than you really are because you, you have so many, so many lives within your own one life that it, it becomes a weight that you have to carry around. And yet it's the most joyous thing that you get to do. There is no greater joy than to hear that your children walk in truth, to put it in John's words, to shepherd is to be willing to lay down your life for the sheep. And perhaps actually one day that will mean dying for them, but certainly it means giving your life for them on a daily basis. On the flip side, you and I both need to hear the admonition of 1 Peter 5, 5. Submit to your elders, respect them, be slow to accuse them. Uh, perhaps you have no interest in church leadership or um, you know, you're, you're a woman and you, you don't have that open to you, and that's fine. Nevertheless, I can promise you, I can promise you that sending an encouraging message to your elders will not go unappreciated. Uh, your elders take a great deal of criticism. They deal with church-wide threatening issues that you don't know about on the regular. There are things that could split the church that you have no idea about, and if they do their job well, well you never will know about it. And that's the thing. If they do it well, then it just never happens. And it's like, wow, that whole thing was avoided and diffused because of some good things that happened behind the scenes and they never get any credit for it. And that's okay. But I would encourage you to recognize that those things happen and they could use a little bit of encouragement. They counsel a broken marriage and bury a member of the congregation. And then they're expected to be engaging on Sunday as they perform in front of you perform. And I, I mean that, I mean that. I mean that. They, they are expected to perform often. And yet, all the same time, they're supposed to be emotionally and physically present for their family when they go home and not just be drained and zapped and absolutely burnt out when they go home. Okay? That's a lot of stress. That's a lot of stress. And if you don't think their families are under the microscope as well, man, they are. That's another place. And so it never stops. Their life is under a microscope of pressure. Be thankful for them. Express it once in a while. Even if you are thankful in your heart, it, it helps when you say, I appreciated this. I saw this. Let them know that you care about them. They need your love and support. If you aspire to be an elder, develop the characteristics that Peter and Paul praise and avoid the, Peter, the vices that Peter describes of the false teachers and of Balaam. Uh, perhaps you don't have that out front desire, then submit to your church elders and be a source of blessing to them. Perhaps this is not the most riveting or happy-go-lucky text, but I hope that you are able to leave today ready to, number one, avoid false teachers, cults, and spiritual predators, while also being able and 
ready to submit willingly, humbly, and readily to good elders. We need to be discerning, absolutely. But don't become so cynical that you forget there are still good under-shepherds who are there to care for your souls. It's so easy to be one or the other, cynical or not cynical, and it's just a light switch, right? Be discerning. Once you recognize that they are following the will of the Lord and they are true true Christians and they're doing the best that they can as human beings, then submit to them and encourage them and be there for them in a wonderful way. Uh, don't think that you're the only true Christian left and that there aren't you know, others who haven't bowed the knee, uh, so to speak, to use an Old Testament example there. The Lord will be against those who lead his people astray, but will lift up those who are faithful to serve him and to serve his people. Psalm 34. shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from my fears. Those who, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall be, never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear the Lord have no lack. The young lions suffer at want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears towards those and, and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of the out of them all keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Um, is someone willing to pray to close us this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time.